1971, Blood on Satan's Claw. Uh, what'd you think about this one? Well, uh, this is one I saw, I guess, for the first time when I was a kid. Uh, they ran it on a local TV station here in New York, Channel 5. Um, quite often, actually. I, I must have seen it five or ten times when I was growing up. Uh, some scenes heavily edited because there's a pretty extended rape scene towards the end of the movie. And also there's a, some full frontal nudity. So that was cut out. But for the most part, uh, the most some of the most effective scenes in the movie were left intact and impressed me as a kid uh, and it still impresses me as being a particularly eerie uh, it's beautifully shot uh, it has uh, some wonderful uh, cinematography the setting is that sort of uh, uh, country setting that you know naturally leads to beautiful imagery uh, and it's uh, I guess the this is a film that's been described now as one of the key uh, early films in the folk horror movement. Yeah, I think it was this one, Witchfinder General, and Wicker Man, or like and the Wicker Man. I guess right. like a, some kind of trilogy, folk horror trilogy, or something right. they're calling it. I don't think that the people who created the films were conscious of that, although no. the director. Of this one, he did in, in a later interview, I guess sometime in the, in the early 2000s, he gave an interview to Fangoria where he actually used the term Fokara. And apparently there was some article that was written back when he was making the film where either he or the person who was writing the article used the term Fokara. But now, of course, that's become uh, a recognized thing. Yeah, almost, uh, like, a, almost like a subgenre. Right, right. And quite popular now with uh, Midsummer and The Witch and yeah. a number of other films, which I guess we can discuss it on later ep later episodes. But it's even similar in a way to uh, films like uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, uh, which we talked about uh, some episodes ago. It has a lot of uh, you know being on the farm and the city folk who come to a rural area and have to sort of you know, grapple with the strange ways of the people. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's very similar. Even some of the imagery is similar. The shots of a uh, young girl in this, the one who becomes the, sort of the, the leader, the charismatic leader of the, of the devil cult uh, with her white uh, smock standing against the sky. It's very similar to some of the images in Let's Scare Jessica to Death with the, the mute woman uh, yeah. running uh, through the uh, cemetery. Um, now, now re-watching it, I watched it again I don't remember how, how many times I've seen it, but on this, I watched it a little bit today, but not today, but this most before that, but when we were supposed to record before, um, realized it was kind of choppy. And then I started to link it to it. I guess it was supposed to have been an anthology. That's right. Yeah. And these should have been three separate stories and they had to try to band-aid them together when they decided not to do that. Do you think that hurts it at all? Or Well, I think that actually the original uh, book was a collection of short stories. It might have been as many as 12 different stories that they were trying to blend together. And I guess then uh, the writer of that book and the, and the director of the film collaborated on a screenplay that tried to bring all those sto uh, story elements together. I mean, in the one sense, in one sense, that's a strength of the thing is that you really get a feeling that there's a lot of stuff happening in this right. town and, and uh, all of it has at, at, at the center of it this evil influence of whatever it's the devil or some sort of demon that's been unearthed uh, at the beginning of the film. 
but it is it's also a weakness because there's some uh, strands that don't go anywhere yeah it seems, uh, seems they had a film that just like kind of come out of nowhere that i guess they're trying to connect everything together i think uh all the stuff with the teacher i think was not originally supposed to have been in there and they had to film it just to flesh that out a little bit more yeah well his story uh is sort of ends kind of abruptly right I yeah mean, and, and actually i was relieved that it ended that way because i was afraid that we get into this sort of tedious business of him being accused of uh, you know, molesting uh, the young girl when the audience knows that that's not what happened yeah, and, you know, yeah. that would that would end up being kind of uh, you know an ordeal for the audience to sit through but fortunately they uh, very quickly resolve all of that and he pretty much fades into the background uh the girl that um is the fiance uh, of the fellow that brings him home uh, he brings her a home to uh, meet uh i guess is it his aunt An uncle or something like that something yeah. like that, yeah and, and the judge is introduced at that point as well the ju judge played by uh patrick weimark yeah weimark, uh, yeah and he uh uh this fellow brings this young woman home i guess they've eloped uh, she's like a country girl and i guess uh, the the uh the aunt it doesn't think she's uh yeah they don't like her at all they, they don't like her <laughs> so they stick her in an attic and uh there's the clothing uh, and boots of the person the previous occupant i guess maybe somebody that passed away that's the way yeah uh, hanging overhead and I thought it was kind of an interesting imagery that she's actually oh, yeah. under the boots of the, of the guy that was there before but very in very short order she is attacked by this demon creature that uh, comes up out of the floorboards and then the next we see her she's being taken out of the house uh, apparently possessed uh, and insane yeah. and they have one of the most chilling images I think in the movie when she pauses as she's walking down the stairs and she puts her hand on the banister yeah, the claw, yeah. it's just a really disgusting claw, claw. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I even as a kid I thought that was very chilling and very effective uh, that's the sort of thing that uh, makes these types of movies work is that uh, sort of little glimpses of the supernatural or little glimpses of uh, demonic evil that are sort of caught out of the corner of your eye if you if you blink you might have missed it uh, and yet it's very clearly there you know uh, you yeah, see that to me that felt like that was probably one of the self-contained self stories that you know that I guess would have they had to go back and add more stuff with the with the fiance later just showing right. him standing there with his hand cut off and all that you know right he he ends up going up to the same attic and yeah. he, he also encounters the creature but there they have one instance where <clears throat> they suggest that maybe at least part of what's going on is in, in the mind in the mind the, yeah because he's he thinks he's being throttled by the glory uh, the hairy claw of the beast and the, and he chops it off grabs a dagger and, and chops it off and it turns out he's cutting off his own hand yeah so i would say a lot of these stories are probably what you know if you're going to go by folklore probably written and have uh double meanings or metaphor for like you know black plague and all that you know or just Possibly. people want you know insanity and all that so well the idea of the patch of hairy skin the devil's skin that shows up that probably is something that people and this is supposedly i guess taking place in what the uh, 17th century yeah <laughs> so that's something that probably a lot of people <clears throat> particularly in rural areas 
uh, would be familiar with the idea of suddenly discovering some horrible deformity on your skin. <laughs> yeah. Where did that come from? You know, and and uh, the fact that um, you know that the only thing you could really rely on if you were living in that sort of situation would be what we consider folk medicine, you know, the right, yeah. the, the sort of uh, old wives approach to uh, curing people. I mean, similar to the, what we see in this, where, where they test to see if the woman's a witch by throwing in the water. In the water, yeah. <laughs> that sort of, that level of, of thinking. Uh, and the, the judge is supposed to be, well, he's a judge, so he's uh, a learned man, he, he's well-read, uh, but he is given a... Uh, a book by the doctor, the local doctor, uh, all about witchcraft. And he's persuaded uh, that there is something to this. At first he resists it. He says, oh, witchcraft is, yeah. that's over with. We don't believe in that anymore. But then when he reads the book, he begins to uh, believe it. I thought that the one line that the doctor says <clears throat> really sums up, uh, sums up this movie and maybe the whole folk horror movie, uh, movement uh, where the doctor says to the judge, you come from the city, you cannot know the ways of the country. And that really is, says it all, right? Yeah. Uh, the city folk, no matter how smart they are, they just can't understand how country folk, you know, uh, operate. Uh, yeah. And there's uh, in that instance, it's an example of somebody who isn't a learned person, somebody who is well-read, uh, assuming, if I can read into it, Assuming that he, if there's a book that has this in it, since he's used to learning from books, there's a book that has all this stuff written down on it, then that must mean there's something to it. But he goes from being a non-believer to the ultimate believer, almost like that. You know, uh, I mean, he take he disappears from the middle of the film. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. assume he's uh, off uh, digesting all of this stuff. But when he makes his return, he's uh, almost like. Uh, uh, Matthew Hopkins, you know, building yeah. the sword, and and uh, uh, although I did, I did think that that's another flaw in the film uh, that uh, the ending is kind of weak. Uh, yeah, I don't they, think they should have shown the, which I guess it's supposed to be Behemoth, and I guess blood on Behemoth's claws not as catchy. Yeah, <laughs> Satan in the title. Yeah, Satan is a sort of catch-all for <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. Maybe that, that should have been hit a little more. I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of uh, Devil Rides Out, where they have a they show the devil, yeah, uh, and more in like a, a pan, like uh, you know, like a goat. Uh, uh, I think actually Christopher Lee calls them the goat goat of Mendes yeah, so, yeah. or something like that. Uh, but um, probably never a good idea to. Although I have to admit, the skull part of the creature is interestingly bizarre and weird yeah uh, but um the body of it is probably not that impressive yeah, claw him, itself him, is, yeah and him you know that actor swinging that big sword around slowly yeah. it was just eh. <laughs> well you could see that they realized themselves and i, I imagine that if you i haven't listened to the Pierce haggett's uh, commentary track uh, i assume he has done one because i know they've put this out on on dvd Blu -ray, and blu-ray yeah. over the years uh, but I would bet that he probably would acknowledge that that wasn't the best scene in the movie. <laughs> and and sort of the tip the tip off is the fact that they decide for the first time in the movie up to that point to start using that sort of pixelated 
uh, not pixelated, but uh, uh, the sort of uh, st still image of, uh, effect, almost like a stop motion effect yeah. with uh, a series of still pictures rather than just letting the action flow at the normal frame rate. And I guess that's a way of sort of hiding how awkward uh, all of that came out. Yeah. Uh, but it's particularly disappointing because he says, oh, something to the effect of um, uh, when I come back, uh, you know, this, it's, you're not, you're not going to believe what you're going to see. You know, the, uh, oh, yes, he says uh, he'll use undreamed of measures to conquer the evil, which turns out to be a little bit of an overstatement. Right? Yeah. Basically shows up with a sword that we don't really understand the the. the you know the magic or the mojo that that's yeah, yeah. the first time we see it we don't anything else about right. it <laughs> so he shows up with that and then all the 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 girl the, the, who's leading the cult and the and the demon itself uh, take turns sort of throwing themselves on the sword which is not really very spectacular yeah. and as a general rule in most dramas uh, uh, you know going back to the silent era uh, and maybe even going back to early stage stuff, even going back to Shakespeare's time, you assume that the climax of the film and the and the when the villain is vanquished, that that's going to be the height of drama, right? That's going to be yeah. spectacular, and it's going to be uh, dramatically fulfilling, right? The audience is going to to really feel something. You don't really feel something at the end of this, <laughs> but that's a relatively minor flaw. I mean, it is hard to pull off, particularly for low budget films. Uh, this company, Tigon, was one of the rivals of Hammer. As a matter of fact, they had their offices apparently in the same building that Hammer had their offices in. Hammer was actually a company that existed going all the way back, I think, to the silent era. Yeah. And they had a uh, uh, an office in London, uh, which actually had on the front of it Hammer House. Uh, and apparently Tygon had their offices there. I thought it was interesting to see that uh, in this film, uh, at, at the end of it, they actually list the whole address of yeah. the, the production company. <laughs> and perhaps that's because they were trying to, yeah, I'm speculating it, but maybe they were trying to uh, associate themselves with Hammer, you know. Well, yeah. they, we, we're in there too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Hammer and Amicus and Tygon, I don't think there were any other major uh producers of british horror films uh, other than those three maybe i'm overlooking somebody but tygon turned out some pretty interesting films in its time it, it uh turned now out they, some they've done well. they've done the wicker man too right or did they do the witch finder which which find a general okay yeah. okay yeah mm -hmm. uh and i guess which find a general must have been successful enough at the box office that it sort of set off a series of of uh, witch, witch hunter uh imitations i know mark of the yeah. devil was another one uh i don't know if that was in a, a british film or maybe it was a italian film or one of those international productions yeah. where everybody's but that one has even more extreme violence as the which is a tortured and you know made to confess or, uh this one doesn't go that far in that direction the violence there's fa fairly minimal violence really uh the, the scene that probably uh, causes greatest comment nowadays is that lengthy rape scene. Yeah, and he said the director said that he probably felt he'd probably gone too far with that scene as well. That it wasn't, you know, wasn't he, said he, did, he said he didn't mind it when they were filming it, but now looking back on it, he regrets right. it. <laughs> 
Well, he expressed an, uh, a feeling that I think I can understand as somebody that's made uh, a couple of little horror movies. When you're in the moment, you want to maximize the effectiveness of every scene. Yeah. And you're not thinking about what what future changes are going to occur in uh, social attitudes, you know, about uh, things like that, the role of women and whatnot. One of the things that surprised me about this movie is that um, it, it definitely, and I think he said this as well, it definitely reflects this, uh, this growing uh, uh, disillusionment with the uh, new age movement that was popular at the time, late 60s and early 70s, flower children and free love and all that sort of thing. Similar to the sort of things that the director of uh, Let's Get Jessica, Jessica to Death said that after the Manson murders and after uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, Rolling Stone concert uh, incident with the yeah. stabbings uh, and a number of other things, uh, that uh, people were looking with uh, fear and trepidation on on these fresh-faced flower children that were saying peace and love because it seemed to come with an undercurrent of perversity or, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it was obvious how easily uh, it could turn into something negative and nasty, negative, as, yeah, as yeah. Charles Manson certainly, <clears throat> certainly proved. Uh, but it also seems that... that uh, the filmmakers and maybe the audience as well, and certainly the characters in the films, uh, seem almost surprised that women are evil. Yeah, <laughs> like we never saw that before. Now it's true that going back throughout the history of movie, there's the movies. There have always been female characters that were the villains, but really the default position for most uh, films, most Hollywood film, films certainly, was that it was always the men who were the villains. They were yeah. always the ones that were like the mad doctor who wanted to get a woman and tie it to a table and yeah. you know conduct experiments on her have her manhandled by the drooling hunchback dwarf that he employs as his assistant or we see in other movies that where there aren't even any human uh, uh, villains where there's just monsters like king kong or creature from the black lagoon or the mummy they're always uh going for the women right yeah the women are always the victims and never the the, the, the villains and in this movie, and it's true in Let's Scare Jessica to Death and uh, several other movies of this kind, uh, they're sort of paving the way for the exorcist in their portrayal of women that are gleefully evil. Oh, they're, yeah. under, they're under the influence of a, ma of a male force, right? We assume the devil is a male, a male entity. So they're under their, his influence, but they're still, I mean, I, the scene in uh, The Exorcist where Reagan is sort of, giggling about having caused uh, Father Marin to drop dead of a heart attack, that sort of gleeful uh, indulgence in evil is something we really hadn't seen that much of up to, the, up to this point. Yeah. And in this movie, you have it as well. I mean, um, uh, the actress that plays uh, the leader of the, the cult, uh, she had actually... Linda Hayden. Right. She, she had actually been in the previous film was a hammer film. It was Taste the Blood of Dracula, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And she's playing a similar part. Now, as a matter of fact, I remember our uh, departed friend, Eric Myers, was talking about how uh, he saw that as uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula as being um, the Dracula being sort of like the Manson type figure who causes his young acolytes to turn against their parents and turn against adults. 
And she has that scene where she, her, her father is chasing after her, I guess, uh, drunken, uh, uh, you know, uh, drunken rage. He's going to beat her or he's going to molest her or do something. Like that. And she, under D Dracula's direction, just picks up a shovel and hits him right in the head. <laughs> and uh, she's continuing that sort of rebellious uh, approach to things in this movie. Uh, and she's a startlingly beautiful woman. Oh, yeah. And she's still acting, apparently, at, at least as recently as 2012, which isn't yeah. that long ago. Uh, but, um, yeah, that, that sort of fear and suspicion of, of uh, the peace and love thing, because of, of its connection to uh, folk ideas, uh, witchcraft and, you know, things like that. Uh, because those things do sort of go in hand in hand, right? When you get out into the into the countryside, uh, you it feels more like the sort of environment in which you're going to find witches operating, or yeah. people casting spells, or maybe even finding parts of the devil, uh, you know, <laughs> on the ground. Uh, that idea of the devil, this is an unusual idea, and I don't know if it's fully exploited in the film. The idea that the devil would be sort of regenerating his physical self by putting patches of his skin, skin on, for, you know, on other people. victims, yeah, and then they harvest that, and I guess they're sort of building him. We don't get to see any of that, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's an interesting idea. <clears throat> Just the idea, it it sort of reminds me of the like the uh, moral panics that we've had we had in the eighties, where. Uh, children would recount all these really extraordinarily ridiculous stories about what had what had been done to them yeah. and they're they're all the more chilling because they are so ridiculous they show a child's imagination of sort of making connections between things that don't really belong together uh, and this has a similar quality to it the, uh, the the idea that the devil needs to grow his flesh on children and that it needs to be harvested so that you can put the devil together <laughs> and he can exist. In a, you know, that's the sort of idea that a child might come up with. You know? yeah. But it's, it's probably more chilling as a result. I mean, my feeling is that probably the devil doesn't, you know, the devil, if he, if he exists, would be powerful enough to present himself without having to be patched together from pieces of carpet, you know. But, Almost you know, like a patchwork quilt. Right. Yes. Uh, but it's still an intriguing idea and it, it, it adds a certain extra texture and, and flavor to the story. Um, but yeah, I suppose one of the uh, another criticism you could make is that uh, uh, all the actors that are playing what is supposed to be children, I assume, or teenagers, at least, they look well beyond their teen years. Yeah, you know, I know that. Um... I knew that Linda, Linda Hayden, she was only 17 in yeah. this movie. And of course, she done full frontal nudity. I know that was a yeah. big controversy. Yeah, well, I guess there was, we were in that period in the, in the late 60s and 70s where I guess they hadn't quite worked out the rules. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I know Natasha Kinski did nudity in To the Devil a Daughter, which was another, which was Hammer's final horror movie, I guess. And she did full frontal nudity in that as well before she reached uh, her majority. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I, 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 I haven't I haven't heard from either one of those actresses that they object uh, to their treatment or to, uh, you know, the existence of those films. Uh, 
But I guess it obviously seems less threatening because it's British. <laughs> <laughs> if it was an American production company, you could just imagine horrible things happening. It just yeah. seems like they've done everything proper <laughs> on this one. <laughs> well, as far as we know, I, I mean, uh, obviously it's not something that would be tolerated nowadays. Oh, no, no. But one of the things that seemed to be in the air at that time with the Hammer films and with a lot of the movie companies that were imitating Hammond's or trying to imitate Hammond's success was you have a bunch of probably middle-aged men who for the first time in their lives realized that they have the ability to get 17-year-old girls to take the clothes <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> and uh, I think that that really damaged, uh, I mean, I, I can appreciate beauty in, in all its forms and it's always nice to see a naked person in a movie, right, if it's an attractive person. But the uh i think it damaged a lot of that later hammer films because yeah. it seemed to be all about that you know it stopped being and some of the uh, i think one of the other movies that tygon did around the same time was something like uh, the virgin witch something like that mm -hmm. i don't know if it got much much play but in just scanning through it today uh it looks pretty much like a softcore porn film uh and i think that probably uh, set them up for failure because when The Exorcist came along, which was a movie that really didn't have any uh, uh, sort of conventional sexiness yeah. about it, <laughs> yeah. uh, that just blew them out of the water. They were they were busy thinking, they were working this one line. They were thinking, oh, well, if you just work more tits into it, it's going to yeah. be successful. <laughs> It'll make money, yeah. And then The Exorcist comes along and says, no, 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 you got it all wrong, <laughs> right? It has nothing to do with the breasts. The breasts are just a way of sort of keeping a tired old formula afloat right? Right. to give a bored audience something to look at while they're being bored. Uh, but The Exorcist comes along and Night of the Living Dead, another movie that didn't have any nudity or, or sexual content. Uh, they come along and they say, you don't, that's, that's not what it's about. This horror movie is supposed to be scaring people and disturbing <laughs> people, right? Uh, <clears throat> I know that with, with the Hammer films towards the end of their run, uh, they would uh, be publishing in the trades. They would publish posters for upcoming films. And I guess on the success of One Million Years BC, which became their biggest hit, largely because of Raquel Welch's uh, appearance in the film and her fur bikini. And so all the posters that they did past that point always had naked women uh, on, on, on the poster. Uh, and they, it was always like coming from Hammer yeah. And it was a naked woman. So again, we're going to get another naked woman from Hammer, you know. And of course, the leaning towards things like the lesbian vampire movies, the vampire lovers, and uh, I, there's a whole bunch. Yeah, a bunch, bunch of, of them. them. Yeah. Now those can be entertaining films. They're interesting films. They're well crafted for what they are. But you have to wonder if that was really the direction they should have been going in. I mean, if they wanted to survive as a company. Survive, yeah. <clears throat> and, I know that. Um... This movie was distributed by Canon in the That's US. Right. That's they got I guess they done their theater. Well, they theater they had one. they weren't yet under the control of the, the infamous Golden and Globus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when Golden and Globus bought Canon, they bought all of those old films, the library of old films that Canon had, had distributed. Uh, so uh, this doesn't have the sort of uh, gross exploitation mark on it that Golden and Globus brought to most of their films. Right, yeah. But yeah, I thought that was interesting too, that that was, uh, that they were, that the Canon, Canon company was involved with this. Uh, Barry Andrews, who plays the guy who actually uncovers 
the demon creature at the beginning of the film. Beginning, yeah. He's also a Hammer uh, uh, actor. He he did uh, uh, Dracula has risen from the grave, I guess. I think so. Yeah. One of the Dracula movies, uh, and also the, the the young woman who gets raped is actually a Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, there was a there was a couple of people from. Uh... Yeah, when when they're uh... anyways, one of, one of the one of the actors actresses in there was uh, played Zoe on Doctor Who. Yeah, I think I'm that not... may have been her. And there was a couple other people that were on that show. I'm not familiar enough with Doctor Who to know, but I, even I recognized her. So I've seen her somewhere yeah. before. So, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, that makes the film of special interest to Doctor Who fans. Uh, but. Uh, and the acting is solid over all, all across the board. I would say the performances oh, yeah. are excellent. I think the dialogue has a certain wit to it. There are some funny lines. I like when the judge refers to the thing that's been dug up as a deformed anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, every, every time I watch it, I see that guy, the judge guy, what's Patrick Wamarks. Right. For some reason, you know, he he looks exactly like King Roland from Spaceballs. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I haven't that's seen Spaceballs keep, in a long that's time. I keep taking over time I see him. Well, this guy, I think he did a very good job. Oh, I yeah. know that this was apparently a part that uh, Peter Cushing and I think Christopher Lee were up for. Uh, they were asking for too much money. <laughs> uh, uh, he, this fellow, uh, was mostly a theater actor, apparently, and he passed away before the movie was released. He died. Yeah at 50 so uh that's kind of a shame maybe he would have had a uh, a career in horror movies pierce haggard still alive matter of fact i followed him on twitter recently he has right. a twitter account <laughs> um he actually was the director of the tv version of pennies from heaven the dennis potter uh tv series that was quite a sensation back when it first aired in in, in the uk and in the united states it was such a big deal that actually Steve Martin did a movie version, which wasn't mm -hmm. wasn't quite as good. Uh, Pierce Haggard also went on to do Venom, and if you can imagine such a misfortune, he actually <laughs> had uh, Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski in the cast. Right. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Apparently, his commentary for that is something to listen to. I'm going to have to try to track that down. He also directed the last Quatermass series. Uh, you're familiar with the Crater Mask. Oh, yeah. Hammer actually did movie versions of the TV uh, Crater Mask shows that were done by Nigel Neal, written by Nigel Neal. And uh, this fellow, Piers Haggard, directed the last one, which was, I think, now is, uh, has been released in the form of uh, a sort of compilation of the series in movie form called the Crater Mask Conclusion. Yeah. Actually, if you watch that, you see some of the same things with like. Uh, New Age uh, folks, cults, and you know, flower children types uh, that also figures into the plot of the Greater Mass Conclusion. Uh, so uh, yeah, he's still around, and he's still uh, apparently he's he, he's a, an advocate for directors' rights. I guess standing up for directors, uh, probably mostly TV uh, directors or theater directors. Right, I, don't, yeah. I, I don't know if movie directors need any more rights. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, just, I just i saw him on a one of the documentaries that mark greatest had done yes and they were talking about this movie and he was on there talking to with him well, i think mark gatus is and the other fellow uh, who we always see in these documentaries that uh, accompany movies 
what's his name? Um, Jonathan Rigby, who served as a sort of consultant or maybe co-wrote Mark Hades' series. But uh, uh, he and Gatiss, I guess, are the guys that are mostly responsible for popularizing this term, yeah. <clears throat> uh, Fokara. And I, 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 uh, how, how would we define Fokara? How would you define it? Uh, I know I have here uh, the Wikipedia definition. Uh, if I can find it, where is it? I mean, I would just I always assume it's just anything horror related to any folk, like a folk story or right folklore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, typical elements include a role setting and themes of isolation, religion, power of nature, and the potential darkness of rural landscapes. So uh, I guess it's uh, all the things that city folks fear about being out in the country. Out in the country, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I forget the exact line, but there's a line in Sherlock Holmes where he tells Watson that what goes on in the country is so much worse than what <laughs> the worst thing you can imagine that goes on in the city is nothing in comparison to what's going on out in the stick somewhere. And I guess that's uh, probably because it's beyond our the normal control structure, right? I mean, in big cities, you're five minutes away from a police station or- Yeah, would be uh, the same thing too, as like the reverse of people who live in a country watching rosemary's baby and going that's why i don't live in the city because <laughs> it's evil you know that's right yeah it's, it's sort of like it flips that right i yeah. mean it makes the the city seem like this sort of uh nest of of uh, ugly uh, stuff that's going on uh but uh the be best thing about folk horror is that you're guaranteed to have some very pretty scenery to look oh, yeah. at while you're, yeah while you're watching it right i so. noticed the copy that i, I watched it I think I'm gonna. I say I watched it on Shutter, and the uh, it still seemed kind of dark. I was expecting a little bit more uh, lighter picture. Uh, and it was filmed out, yeah, I consider it was filmed outside. But I guess I guess maybe when they filmed it, it was just all gray skies and everything. But probably typical of <clears throat> English countryside. Yeah, yeah. Like but, the, you know, the, just the opening scene of the the guy that finds the behemoth, and then he's talking to the girl she's a way over across the field in the in the tree lines and they have that shot of just you and that just shows you how vast and open it is right. so i guess i was expecting a little bit more you expected more sunshine sunshine yeah <laughs> well the uh the uh the director talks about how he intentionally kept everything low to low, the ground yeah, under dig holes to put the camera in All right <laughs> So you get the impression when you're watching the movie that you're almost on the level of the creature that he's dug up, whatever it is. Uh, you're seeing everything from the devil's perspective. Right. Uh, which is the sort of thing that you may not be conscious of the first time you watch it, but it does sort of, it does sort of get, get at you uh, on a sort of subconscious level. Um, these are people that are close to the earth. Uh, you know, they got... Uh, you know they're not the king because they don't have shit all over them to quote yeah. the money for them. Uh, but they're he actually puts the audience even closer to the earth, right? He's, he's, we actually are down, <laughs> yeah. uh, down uh, at the level of uh, the mud and uh, an excrement. Now the guy, the guy that played the teacher, he looked oddly familiar. I mean, I I think I he kind of resembled uh, Eric Roberts a little bit, but I'm I just kept thinking I'm probably seen him in something else, but. 
Well, I he, he looks familiar to me because I've been watching this movie since I was a kid, <laughs> yeah. but I, I don't think I've seen him in anything else. Probably all the actors are folks that were busy in British television. And, right, yeah. You know, because that's probably the place where most actors, British actors get employed, right? The British movies are kind of hit and miss. They don't really have a thriving industry with the exception of things like Hammer. Uh, but TV and theater uh, are always employing people and they're always churning stuff out. A lot of the sort of uh, early examples of folk are probably things that were done on British television. Right, yeah. Uh, there's a thing called Panda's Fen, I think is the name of it, which is often cited as being one of the early examples of folk horror. And there are a few other things that, uh, that you know, done for British television, but, which not, now would be recognized as being uh, as folk horror. I suppose even the adaptations of uh, M.R. James stories that were very popular, they have like a, a long-running series or a long-running tradition of doing horror stories or ghost stories for Christmas, often adaptations of M.R. James's stuff. I know I've seen a lot of people cite Curse of the Demon as a folk horror story. I suppose it could be considered that. Yeah. I think even Gatiss mentions Curse of the Demon in, in that episode of the series. Uh, but uh, Whistle and I'll Come For You, uh, which is a short story that uh, M.R. James wrote, which has been adapted twice now. Jonathan Miller, uh, the Beyond the Fringe guy, he did, uh, he directed a 60s BBC movie of it, which was very effective. And it's sort of a similar thing, uh, like a, a city person going out to a, a relatively r rural area right. and encountering the supernatural. And that seems to be a thing that M.R. James, that's a theme that M.R. James worked on quite often in his stories. Uh, and uh, they redid that, I guess, in the 2000s, early 2000s, uh, with John Hurt in the, in the lead role. So that's something that might also be considered part of the Folkara thing. Uh, but I guess what happens with all of these things, with all these subgenres, is uh, once we sort of define it, then we begin to expand it, you know, yeah. say, well, it's this, but oh, what about that? What about yeah. that? <laughs> Anything that has a similar quality to it can also be included. And probably that's appropriate because a lot of these films have been influenced by, you know, these earlier films like Witchfinder General and Wicker Man and, and one yeah. of I guess I never really thought about just the setting being part of that too. I always just assume anything it's witches or satanic or, uh, any other kind of, you know, when, you know, the Wendigo and all that stuff. But I just never really thought about the setting being part of, you know, that you have to be in that setting to be considered that folk horror, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, putting it in a, in a, in a rural or a bucolic uh, setting gives all sorts of advantages to the film. Obviously, it's, it's probably cheaper to shoot in the countryside oh, yeah. than it would be in a city. And you have automatically you have all that beautiful imagery. A lot of the stuff in the Wicker Man with like the naked girls dancing around in a sort of Stonehenge uh, environment, that looks something like what we see in this movie with uh, the, the groups of uh, young folks uh, cavorting uh, in, in the fields, playing their games, as they oh, call yeah. it. Uh, and putting and the, on the flowers and the hair and all that. I have to go, have to go say the scene where they're 
bringing that girl up to be you know raped or whatever that's just a beautiful scene itself you know they're all yeah. just walking slow and single foul line with their flowers in their hair and right. yeah, it's got <laughs> a lot of going through the color world. and yeah the old yeah. i guess i guess it, i guess it would have been an old castle that was tore down that's what they're mm -hmm. in the remnants of that looks right. really good yeah and the they he, he works in contrast to a rape scene. <laughs> yeah. Well, that I mean that it that is always what you would want to try to do, right? Is to have the, the grotesque contrasted with the beautiful. Right? Yeah. So you, you have some uh, a group of young people that look physically beautiful, you know, and then they're doing something that's extraordinarily sadistic and horrible. That makes that much more that's much more potent right yeah it's more, much more shocking when you see it like you know if they were backwood hicks you'd be like okay i almost expect them to do this all right but since they're all you know clean educated <laughs> well, you know, children you think okay they're not going to be that evil they look like normal kids for the most yeah, part yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they he works in a couple of old folks a couple of old crones uh just to give a little flavor to those shots right uh, and to show that it's a multi-generational thing, that evil yeah. isn't something that started with this uh, this generation. But uh, yeah, the overall effect is very, it, it creates a sort of uh, nauseous uh, quality, you know, uh, almost like a fever dream quality. You're right that it isn't brightly lit in sun. I don't, I don't suppose you could expect that in a film yeah. shot in the UK, but it does have that sort of uh, afternoon or daylight horror feel to it that... Uh, uh, something terrible is happening and can't be prevented and it's all happening in the broad daylight in just broad like daylight, yeah just like the end of the wicker man where he's oh, just yeah. sort of marched out and everybody's <laughs> happy and he's being marched to his to his fire right he's being going to be set ablaze and it's to me that is one of the more grim and depressing yeah. scenes in horror movies right because there's just no hope you're in the hands of people that are uh, completely convinced. Uh, yeah, and you know what's coming, and it's not right? quick. <laughs> it's not quick. He knows what's coming too, and there's no no way to stop it. Right? There's absolutely no uh, no way to reason with the, these people, and as you know, they got him dead to rights. And I guess the other thing that is embarrassing, not to go off too much on the Wicker Man, but the other thing that's embarrassing for him is he sort of walked right into it. Right? Oh yeah. He uh, he he should have taken the, the warnings along the way, the signs along the way. He didn't, and he he sort of set himself up to be there, uh, you know, to be the pig yeah. taken to slaughter. You know, again, but, it's because he's from the city. I'm smarter than these people. I'm, you know, he's a he's a police, so he thinks he's has power that he you know that he has in the city that he doesn't have out here. <laughs> right, arrogance. Uh, certainty that they're just a bunch of hicks and he, he knows better and he's going to show them how to be decent Christians, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so they certainly had the last laugh on him. Uh, but uh, in, in this case, perhaps one of the reasons why it's a disturbing movie uh, is because the perspective of the film is that the, the judge is right. The judge and the other people that are trying to stamp out the witches, they are actually right. There are witches and there is a yeah. devil among them. Right? <laughs> so that's an interesting thing. Uh, you, uh, nowadays, of course, you wouldn't see that too much. You wouldn't see the, uh, the sort of 
corpulent judge who would normally be portrayed as a corrupt figure and an ignorant uh, person, uh, uh, sort of upholding stale old uh, ideas of morality, we wouldn't be seeing that person as a uh, hero now, now, if they were making a film nowadays. Yeah. But in the, the perspective that that film takes is that uh, is really the perspective of a person of that time, right? I mean, it's almost a story, a sort of story that a person of that time would tell. It's not a story told from our perspective of our time. It's told from the perspective of people of that time. Uh, so when it turns out at the end that there is a big hairy guy uh, that needs to be killed, that sort of fits, but it also creates a sort of disturbing feeling because we've been on, we've been on the side of the witch hunters. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the witch hunter and in the uh, witch, witch finder general is not really a hero, right? No, no. And he's dispatched at the end by the true hero of the, of the film. Uh, but in this, the witch finder is the hero. And uh, he gets to kill the bad guy, the, 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 the creature. I mean, I do feel that there is, this does sort of work as a sort of lead in to the exorcist because uh, the judge is very similar to Father Marin. Right. When all the other uh, avenues have been explored to deal with this problem, the judge shows up with his holy text and with his sword or yeah. his crucifix in the case of <laughs> Merit, And he's the guy that sorts things out. Uh, so there's a similarity there. It's a conservative film. Uh, blood is. You know, it's, it has a conservative, uh, I don't mean conservative like the sort of crazy fucks that we have nowadays. <laughs> yeah. I mean, conservative in the, in, the, in the old sense, in the traditional sense uh, of trying to preserve like uh, traditional values and Christian values, especially. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that makes it interesting. It could yeah. just as easily have gone in the other direction and tried to suggest that all this is going on in the minds of the young people. Yeah. Now this was um, this was seventy one, so we really didn't have a satanic panic. So these movies weren't controversial in that way, right? When they came out. Well, I mean, uh, the 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 reason why movies like Rosemary's Baby and The Omen and The, and the Exorcist contributed to the satanic panic is because of the overwhelming popularity of it. Yeah, this film probably made little or no impact on the box office. It didn't wasn't very well reviewed when it was first released. I don't know how far reach Canon had as a distributor back then. So in the United States, I don't know. I think this was on a double bill with some other uh, supernatural horror film. I forget right. which one it was. So uh, it just didn't have the sort of impact that something like The Exorcist would have, simply because people didn't see it. We don't know uh, if on some sort of... Uh, subconscious level uh, if people when they see a movie like this on tv and their local stations repeated over and over again over the years whether that, that the ideas in it sort of work their way into their heads yeah. it's possible i suppose uh but that's kind of a hard thing to judge right we watch these movies and we're interested in them and entertained by them but we say well it's not it's not the greatest movie ever made 
and we move on to something else. Yeah. <laughs> we don't realize that there's stuff that got stuck in the back of our heads that this a film like this introduces. I mean, I, you can even see sort of echoes of this in the Blair Witch Project, mm -hmm. which I guess probably would have to be considered a folk horror movie, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, all, the, all the folk horror movies that we talk about also seem to have a little bit of a Lovecraftian influence in them. Uh, so the fact that this creature is sort of ill-defined, right? we don't know exactly what it is. First, it's a, it's a skull with an eyeball in it, and then it's a claw, a hairy claw, a claw and, yeah. you know, and it's patches of hair on the, on the backs of the kids. Uh, it it's sort of has an amorphous quality to it. And even when we finally see it uh, in its fully formed, presumably fully formed shape, its face almost looks like a Salvador Dali version of a skull. Yeah. It's like, yeah, just uh, thinking back now, I can't tell you what it looks like. Yeah, it's very indistinct. So that is kind of a Lovecraftian thing. And I suppose some of the stories that he wrote uh, also involve sort of backward, superstitious townspeople in isolated uh, remote regions. Uh, who have their own little superstitious ideas or they have their sort of local folklore. Uh, and the stories usually involve somebody from the city, from the big city being stupid yeah. enough to come into town and, and violating some, you know, uh, some rule or, you know, uh, crossing some boundary that causes them to get into trouble with the, with the local people. Uh, so it has a Lovecraftian quality to it. But I also, uh, the, the business of, Focusing on like little indistinct bits of stuff. Like for instance, in the Blair Witch Project, one of the things that makes that movie so troubling is when they find those little sculptures, uh, twigs and things. All that the have been stick, yeah, the stick right. figures, yeah. And then one of, the, one of the people in the group is taken away in the night and the only thing that's left is what appears to be a little bit of flesh. Uh, I think it's supposed to be... Tooth? Yes, teeth. And then... <clears throat> maybe a piece of his tongue okay. and i guess that's the witch does you takes those parts and now she can recreate his voice or whatever and lures him further into woods well that that idea though that uh that rather than seeing something that's very explicit and clearly defined yeah we see these little bits of things that we almost aren't quite sure what they are you know <laughs> uh and in this movie yeah it was a similar thing like uh, they have uh the the children are passing that claw the claw around, yeah that right? they found yeah uh and one of the kids has a little bag filled with what appeared to be uh pieces of bones and bones, things like yeah. that sort of thing that a kid would probably have right the kids are inclined particularly young young boys are inclined to sort of collect disgusting little things <laughs> yeah <laughs> But the idea that when we see that, it automatically has a sort of, it feels evil, it feels perverse and, and weird. And it's perfect for these types of stories because it, it sort of suggests that there's a, a, a sickly side to even an apparently <clears throat> healthy young person that they have this sort of bizarre, weird uh, inner life, you know, that they're, they're, uh, interested in or obsessed by things that are on are unhealthy yeah. sort of reminds me of uh, uh, yukio mishima's story the sailor who fell from grace with the sea have you ever heard of that one i don't think so they made a movie out of it in, in, a, in, a, in a u.s american film uh, with chris christopherson in the 70s but it was a japanese author um, who had a rather spectacular demise we'll save that story for another time 
But he wrote this story about, I guess, it's a, a school teacher who, um, uh, well, the, the bottom line on it is uh, he's eventually taken by a group of his students, his young students. He's tricked to, into going to a place where they drug him and they basically dismember him. And it was a pretty shocking story. Uh, and I, I, I think that there are probably quite a few stories right around the same time about uh, young children, student, you know, students in schools that are up to devilish business. You know, yeah. I, I could think of a few movies. I don't, you know, I didn't I should have come prepared with the titles, <laughs> but just you know, I, I remember seeing a bunch of films right around that time that had basically the same. Uh, the gist of it was that you know, be careful for those kids because there's stuff going on there that you know, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something wrong going on with those kids. And of course, we see that ultimately coming out in Rosemary's Baby and The Omen and The Exorcist, where the, the children are actually yeah. the devil. Children of the Damned. Children of the Damned another one, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, so scary kids who are up to no good uh, seem to be a popular idea right around that time. Uh, adults are afraid of children. Children, yeah. <laughs> I probably have good reason to be. Probably, yeah. Yeah, going back to like... <clears throat> like how you know you were saying that in, in this movie it's you know it's obviously that the devil's real and that's what's doing it i noticed in like what we what we consider folk horror movies nowadays tend to focus more on it's not really happening it's all in your head right <clears throat> like you know almost like i guess that's where we're at now it's a society is mental illness and all that yeah well um we could say that uh, ch children or adults that uh, behave in evil ways, what we would consider evil ways, yeah. that, that engage in violent, violent crimes or sadistic things, they, that probably is the result of mental illness on their part because there really are no supernatural forces yeah. at work. You know? <clears throat> uh, that stuff doesn't exist. Uh, so all the stuff that causes young people or old people to engage in uh, barbaric or or, or uh, sadistic ways uh, has to do with whatever has gone wrong in their minds as they were being raised, right? The environment they were being raised in or, or whatever problems with their brain uh, have resulted from the environment that they grew up in, the, uh, the uh, whether it's lead paint or pollution <laughs> or poor nutrition or whatever it is that's skewed them so that yeah. they, they're not thinking right you know i mean we're going through a period now here in new york where we're just having almost on a daily basis unprovoked attacks on, on people in the streets and in the subways savage things i think we just had somebody mm -hmm. get knifed to death just the other day for no apparent reason just somebody right. jumping on somebody and stabbing them to death uh what is the cause of that has to be mental illness right what's the cause of the mental illness a whole bunch of things i guess oh, yeah. but uh yeah, but yeah and, and with, with this movie being made in 71 i imagine uh they didn't have any kind of like metaphor for like drug use or anything in it either kind of surprised yeah. you figured you'd see something like that in there yeah well that is one thing that they sort of left yeah, out like an explanation yeah. of you know that that could be a possibility of what's going on right. the kids are eating shrooms or something <laughs> right right yeah well um uh, there was a famous murder case right around this time in England. A young woman and her friend murdered someone 
uh, I think they might have murdered a child. I forget the name of the of the of the case. Uh, but there was that, and then there was the Manson murders, and there were a bunch of other things that probably convinced a lot of people that the world was sort of going off the rails, and that young people seemed to be behind a lot of the stuff that was happening, some of the, a lot of the negative stuff that was happening. Uh, to be fair, uh, there were a lot of people at the time who were sort of uh, what we would call now thought leaders, people who are culturally important, rock stars and things like that were flirting with some pretty unpleasant things like yeah. a lot of the uh, rock stars sort of had a sort of flirted with uh, satanism and, and witchcraft and things like that an interest in alistair crowley and, and you know they may have had their explanations or their rationalizations for doing that uh, and it, uh, i remember even uh, david bowie at one point got into trouble for uh expressing an, an interest or an admiration in, uh, in uh, Hitler. Right. Matter of fact, there was a big scandal when he appeared to give a Hitler salute <laughs> on, uh, on one occasion. Um, so a, a lot of the folks that were sort of leading the culture at the time might, might have been guilty of being slightly irresponsible by right, uh, yeah. publicly and in, in, uh, in uh, indulging their interest in uh, and these types of things, which aren't really helpful or productive, really. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously the Salem witch uh, trials were basically a fraud. It was a miscarriage of justice. It was people who were they were not witches, yeah, uh, and they were e executed eventually uh, for a variety of reasons that had nothing to do with uh, the supernatural powers that they might have possessed. Uh, and you see uh, all through history, really, right up to the present time, people uh, <clears throat> using uh, that uh, witchcraft or supernatural stuff as a way of damaging the reputations of folks. I mean, we just fairly recently we had, I think it was a congressman or somebody accusing his opponent of being uh, a witch. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, so that's a that's a pretty what what what's interesting to me and i guess when i see there's this video of a couple of old people out in countryside somewhere uh, near there still uh dancing around a a cutout of donald trump and uh, to me the that's the horror uh, of, oh, yeah. <laughs> of the uh, of, of the of the folk people the the rural horror is that you have folks that have been cut off from any opportunity to really educate themselves and broaden their minds and yeah. be able to deal with the business of thinking right they can't they don't, and so they're particularly gullible you know to me it's the most perverse thing that these folks practically you know, dancing barefoot in the mud yeah. around this this uh, false idol. You know, somebody who in real life would have no interest in me. Oh no, no, and he knew that, and that's why he <laughs> he knew what he was doing. Right <laughs> when he said all those things, he know knew uh, on an intuitive level because I don't think he's any smarter than those people that are dancing around his cutout. He knew on an intuitive level what sort of message that they would respond yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that to me is sort of like 
our modern version of Fokar. Yeah. That we have that uh, people out there in parts of the country cut off from, not just cut off from, uh, you know, uh, the sort of conveniences of the big city, but cut off from reason. Hmm. Right? They're living yeah. in their own <laughs> bubble of, of, I don't like to use the word ignorance because it sounds like we're insulting them. And I, I think right, that yeah. they're really victims more right. than anything else. But all of these things, I suppose, are inevitably uh, going to come up uh, because they seem to, you know, it's almost as if uh, the stuff we see in these uh, folk horror movies, and maybe it's true about horror movies in general, they're sort of like warnings of what things are going wrong in our society. And maybe in a way, it's, it's a positive thing that we have these horror movies sort of waving their hands and saying, be careful, look at what's happening. <laughs> but in a way, maybe it's not such a good thing because people view them as entertainment. And when the movie is over, they think, okay, well, that's, that problem is solved. Yeah. <clears throat> and they don't recognize that these things may have some relevance in our day-to-day -day life that you might be encountering. Uh, there might be a sizable portion of our population that is just as ignorant and superstitious and backward in their thinking as the characters that pop up in these uh, folk horror movies. Right, yeah. I mean, I always thought it was kind of interesting that the guys that are in the VW, uh, the VFW hall uh, uh, and let's get Jessica to death, they look like they would be attending <laughs> a Trump rally nowadays. Yeah. Uh, so none of this is new. It's just that we haven't done anything we haven't taken right, any yeah. steps to prevent these things. We're trying to fix it. We just. But anyway, I, I don't mean to go off on a rant. But, That's fine. <clears throat> uh, these movies always put me in that sort of my, frame of mind. I don't know why that should be, but Mark of the Devil is even more severe. I don't know if you've seen that one. I think I have. I... Uh, that that has a lot of pretty extreme violence in it. But so the attitude that it takes is that the. Uh, uh, the torturers, the witch finders are not the heroes. Yeah. So I don't know, given my outburst uh, in which I express my, my political leanings, I, I don't know if I should be so enamored of <laughs> on Satan's claw because, uh, you know, it, it has a sort of backward uh, perspective to it. Uh, and I don't know. Where does that leave us? Well, but I mean, if you think about it, it's just especially just good versus evil. Evil is what that's you know what these stories are. So, you know, back then we weren't connecting that with politics as much as we would now. You know what I'm saying? Well, it might be the central problem with anybody of a progressive or liberal bent who wants to do horror is that if you're doing supernatural horror. How do you explain that? I mean, it's sort of like the problem that Ira Levin had. He was very definitely more on the liberal side in his thinking. And yet he, he saw that uh, there are a lot of people that used Rosemary's Baby uh, as a sort of starting point for what became that moral panic. The, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, boy, there was this, uh, preschool, uh, Martin preschool uh, yeah, yeah. trials and all that sort of thing. Now, nobody's blaming Ira Levin, but he recognized too that The Omen and Rosemary's Baby, all of those films, The Exorcist, uh, played a part in directing people uh, that way, you know, and getting people's minds prepared 
for that that way of thinking. Uh, so originally, I guess he was thinking of doing Rosemary's Baby as a story about an alien rather than yeah. the son of the devil being born. Uh, he was looking for a way to avoid having to deal with uh, Christianity, you know, uh, uh, talking about the devil and, and, and Jesus uh, <laughs> wasn't really the point that he was trying to make, but he was trying to make a point about something else. And, and he was using those things as a, as a, as a sort of on-ramp to, to the discussion that he wanted to have. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we should have more <clears throat> uh, movies where the witches and the Satan whispers are the good guys <clears throat> and they, beat down the bad Christians. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in, in a way it is, even as a, as a, as a progressive person who would normally not be siding with the witch finders, right. uh, it, it is uh, sometimes invigorating to uh, see the forces, the sort of traditional forces uh, emerge victorious. You know, uh, we, we, there's a part of us that like, to see that i mean that's one of the reasons why movies like star wars is so effective yeah so to see establishment or the re-establishment of traditional values right heroism and uh selflessness you know uh, and uh, fighting the bad guy everybody getting together to fight the bad guy uh, sometimes it's it's refreshing to see that you know Sometimes we want to get away from morally ambiguous things. I mean, I don't suppose that the, uh, the reaction to some of the more recent folk horror movies, uh, as popular and successful as they've been, they're probably not anywhere near as uh, influential uh, on a larger culture than something like The Exorcist, right? No, no, I doubt that. The Exorcist was a real phenomenon, and it really did affect the way people th uh, thought about these things. Um, and I remember even as a kid, uh, listening to the conversations that my parents were having and how, uh, educated people could, you know, begin to toy with the idea that maybe there's something to all this, you know, sort of similar to the way the judge does, you yeah. know, I normally would never consider it, but you know, somebody shows you a book and it looks like there might be something to it and you start, <laughs> well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have to rethink this. It is a simple way to think about life, right? I mean, it's much easier to think about life as being a battle between clearly good people and clearly evil people. Uh, it's just when you realize that there are no clear lines like that, usually. Yeah. Uh, that's when things become very stressful and anxiety producing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's much nicer to have a clear, clear villain to fight against. But anyway, yeah, so Blood on Satan's Core, uh, effectively disturbing movie. Uh, I don't know if, if uh, the influence uh, that it has is probably more important than uh, the actual effect that the movie would have on a younger audience. I don't yeah. think many young people would find this particularly spellbinding. I find it probably interesting. But, <clears throat> uh, but the effect, the influence that it had on movies that are being done now, uh, uh, that's probably its main contribution, its main claim to fame. It's interesting that this folk horror thing became so popular again. It seems to be everybody's favorite flavor. And right. even people that never expressed any particular interest in horror films in the past seem to be intrigued by the, the, the folk horror genre.
There's been a well, I mean, I guess you had a hereditary witch. Uh, there's been several other like movies on Netflix and Hulu that were mm-hmm. you could consider, you know, folk horror that I guess have been pe- pretty popular. Yeah, yeah. Well, another thing I should mention about this one of the definite uh, things that we can say as far as uh, excellent uh, uh, parts of this film. Um, the score oh, yeah. by Mark Wilkinson. I remember even as a kid thinking that the score for this was so unsettling. You know, it really, it, it, it's like the devil's theme song. And I, I guess it, <laughs> it uses, what do they call it? The devil's tricord or the devil's chord? That sort of descending yeah. notes. Uh, it really works that to the ultimate degree i mean it's it's, it seems everything seems to be descending like the music is constantly throwing us into a pit uh very effective very chilling i think that fellow rigby uh, jonathan rigby who did the uh history of horror with uh, mark addis he said that he thought that this was one of uh one of the best uh, scores ever done for uh British horror film. Yeah. It's probably true. It's very effective, very memorable, uh, queasy and unsettling, and, and you know, and disturbing, like you know, like itching powder on you. But at the same time, beautiful. You know. Oh yeah, I was, I was thinking there were some parts in it that, just thinking back about it, there was some instrument instruments used that for some reason made me think of like a lullaby. Mm-hmm. Like you know, then I guess that kind of links it up with the kids or whatever, right. but must seem kind of chipper <laughs> all right well it has that that's what was going on right it has almost like a wistful quality yeah. uh, to it that like uh yeah everything's going to hell but uh, you know what can you do <laughs> yeah. uh sort of like um uh quality of uh having sort of a, a vague nostalgia for the past and a sort of a sorrow for the for the future yeah. fear of the future but it, it's uh, uh the ultimate effect is you know, very powerful, very, very uh, troubling and very effective in this movie. It probably oh, is yeah. one of the great strengths of the movie. And, uh, so that's recommended. He actually went on and did, uh, he did the score with, appears Haggard went on and directed the very unfortunate fiendish plot of Fu Manchu, which was <laughs> Peter Sellers' last movie. Apparently yeah. did the score for that. And he also did the score for uh, Haggard's uh, Quatermass uh, series. Uh, so uh, but I guess he's mostly known for theater work as well. Right. So these two guys, uh, Haggard and this uh, Wilkin, uh, Wilkinson guy, they mostly operate in theater and they've just come out on occasion to give some interesting movies uh, like Blood on Satan's Floor. And certainly a valuable contribution. Right? If you had if you had one movie like this in your on your resume, if, if this was all was all you had, you'd say, well, you did pretty well for yourself. You know? Yeah, I definitely I definitely recommend it. Um, always like a movie with a attractive antagonist. That's what we get with uh, Linda Hayden in this one. Yeah, well, I think if if I had been there around this time, I think I would have been right right there right along with them. <laughs> She would have uh, seduced me right in there. <laughs> well, she gets a little freaky looking when her eyebrows start to grow. Yeah, when well, she draws draws the eyebrows on you. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, seems to be a popular 
that's, I think that was on one of the covers, one of the Blu-ray covers. I think they used that. That, fo- that, that photo image. Yeah. yeah, the one I wrote that photo, I guess somebody went back and drew, redrew it. Mm-hmm. That, that's the, but I see that image everywhere. Well, it's, it's, a, it is kind of a, it's subtle, uh, but it's scary at the same time. Yeah. So, but, uh, well, she certainly was a, a radiant looking young woman. Uh, uh, so that always adds to any movie if you have really attractive people in it. And I guess uh, with the teacher plot where they're trying to suggest that he's struggling with his attraction to her and, uh, you know, that the fact that she's so attractive makes that work you know it's easy yeah, to see yeah. why somebody might question their commitment to god if they have somebody like that standing naked <laughs> throwing themselves on yeah right. <laughs> but uh so uh yeah so all in all definitely an important film and well worth catching i think yeah. it's on tubi now if i'm not mistaken i believe so of course it's also on youtube i don't know if it's the edited version or not i don't know if they cut anything out for that one but well, hopefully by now the edited version has been, you know, consigned to the dustbin. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, probably when I was watching, well, certainly when I was watching it on TV years ago, it was the edited version. Edited I think part, yeah. probably this version, I haven't gone back and actually checked, but this is the VHS version that I had. This was put out by MGM uh, sometime in the 90s, I guess. Kind of a generic cover. They got. <laughs> yeah, they didn't knock themselves out with this no. one at all. Uh, they just figured, well, what the hell? The name, the, the title will carry, yeah. will carry the thing. But uh, uh, I don't have too many uh, uh, visual aids to show on this other than uh, a good review in the issue of Video Watchdog, which is not surprising because I think by the time that issue came out, the film had already established itself. Yeah. But this is actually an early issue of Cine Fantastique. Matter of fact, I think this might be one of the earliest issues of Cine Fantastique. And they have a very good review of the film here. There's her with her eyebrows. There she is with her eyebrows, yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing that's remarkable to me about these old issues of uh, Cine Fantastique is how tiny the type was. I don't know yeah. who they, who, was, who are the readers? I don't know. You have to buy special spectacles to be able to read them. But it got a good review uh, in Cine Fantastique. And uh, what more do we need to know, right? Yeah, like I said, beautifully shot. Soundtrack's good. Story's kind of weak, but I can't. Yeah. Once you realize that <laughs> they were trying to piece it together, then it's like kind of makes sense. But yeah. in the ending, ending could have been a little bit better. But I, I still like it. Yeah, all in all, it's it's an important film, I guess we could say, in the in the history of uh, horror films, and then particularly folk horror. Very influential. Yeah. Anybody that's a fan of the you know, the newer movies that are coming out, The Witch, and they, they should definitely go back and watch this one. Yeah, I'd be interested. Ones. I know I have a lot of friends who were big fans of those films, but I'm not sure they've seen this film. So yeah. I'd be interested <laughs> if they watch this to see if they if they get the same sort of effect from it. Yeah. I, I, well, I think, I think The Wicker Man is probably the more popular one out of these three, you know, between Wicker Man, this one, and Witch Finder General. All right. Yeah, I definitely. think a lot of more people's probably plus with the with the Nicolas Cage remake, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. a lot of people's <laughs> heard of that one. Which I'm surprised this one hasn't been remade yet. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. I, you you would think that well, I don't know. I assume that the rights would be available if they wanted yeah. to. Uh, but um, well, uh, maybe the problem with the story is the, is the key issue that it's just not. It's yeah, you, too, have, you would have to update it. Yeah, yeah, it has to be. Uh, 
you have to have a, I mean, the, the, one of the things that they say in the Sydney Fantastique Review, which is a criticism, is that it's not really clear what the story is about, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it goes in so many directions at once. Uh, I, like I say, I think to a certain extent that might be a plus because it means you're constantly seeing new and interesting things when, oh, yeah. when they follow a particular storyline uh, to, to the point where it begins to become a little tedious, they switch to something else we have a new set of characters that come in and but it does create a sort of uh diffused feeling uh, so, so it's kind of hard to know who you should be rooting for who you should be caring about and we just got interested in the story about the woman that is attacked in the attic and <laughs> yeah and then taken away her, yeah. to the mental institution <laughs> and that's pretty much it for her you know we never find out what happened to her but uh, on the other hand i don't know how you could really blend all those stories together i mean no. uh, it would be kind of hard to imagine how you could uh, adequately or satisfactorily resolve all those different plot strands you would have to have the <clears throat> the governor or whatever whatever he is the judge and the uh the fiance and maybe the teacher they'd have to all team up and <laughs> <laughs> go battle the evil and <laughs> bringing them all together well, that's that's also the problem. I, I, what I, what I like about this is that it sort of lightly touches on these ideas, and it and then it ends. Uh, whereas if you really gave it a serious treatment, the absurdity of the concept, the basic concept, <laughs> would begin to weigh it down. Right, the idea yeah. of the devil trying to reassemble himself uh, from patches of skin, uh, you know, that probably would begin to become kind of silly if if it was taken seriously and you really tried to. Uh, make the, the story logical or consider hey, the way it works now it's almost like a bunch of little um uh little uh, little folk horror tales little yeah. just the little points of them the little the main points the punch lines of them being dramatized and then you move on to the next one so we have uh, it's like a potpourri <laughs> pleasure yeah. uh, a, a potpourri or a mm -hmm. uh, a, um, a hash perhaps yeah. <laughs> Uh, of, of these different ideas but I, I think that's always important that you don't uh, you don't stick with something so much and go into so much detail that it begins to become yeah especially when you start thinking about it yeah like how is this even happening <laughs> right it's the ideas are not logical to begin with right it's an absurdity right from the start the whole idea that the whole thing would be set off because he's pushing his plow and he uncovers Part of, the, yeah. part of the devil i mean that doesn't really even make much sense why would the devil why would he need somebody to come along with a plow, plow to, yeah. to dig him up you know but from the perspective of the peasants it does make sense uh, yeah right all this started sort of like the woman in the in the diner and the birds this all started when you came here <laughs> right uh, no logic to that it's just that that's the way an, an uneducated person might think right they see the what appears to be the cause and they assume that that is the cause right because what else could it be right so you find a piece of bone and then a bunch of strange things start to happen afterwards and people say well it must, it must be your fault you found yeah. that bone right? <laughs> so yeah so it is kind of it's built on absurdities yeah right from the start and it's best to just sort of skip lightly through it and just get the effect of the thing rather than to try to really make it into a logical uh you know fully struck well-structured story would yeah, be don't don't perfect. try to explain to me how you're 
removing skin and hair from kids and making a demon out of yeah. it. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of hard to forget that even happened. You know, <laughs> it, it's best that they didn't ever attempt to show any of that part of it. I mean, the yeah. only thing they show is that when when she sticks the the blades in the back of the of the woman. Well, uh, no, they actually have the where they actually remove. Remember right. they removed. Well, that's yes, the doctor. Yeah, <laughs> but the folks that are supposedly under the control of the devil, uh, we, we never see them making use of these patches of flesh, yeah. right? And some things like so, sort of seem to come out of nowhere. Like he cuts himself when he's he seems to be forever digging around in the woods and chopping trees and everything. He cuts his leg and then he looks and he sees his leg is almost completely covered with. Uh, the devil's skin yeah and that just happens like that and then he goes up and one moment we see him cowering in his room and the next minute he's sort of on the sacrificial altar with a naked woman dancing in front of him <laughs> yeah. so the fact that they don't show his face in those long shots suggests to me that 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 those scenes were sort of cobbled together and maybe there was some extra stuff that was shot to sort of tie it all together that that actor wasn't really there for yeah. some of that you know, but um, but there again, uh, probably weakened a little bit by the insistence of working in more breast nudity. Right? Yeah. They have to get some model to dance naked in front of them. For I'm not complaining, but no, I mean, if you if you're making a, a movie and you have problems with the plot, I suppose that's a great way to hide the problems, yeah. right? Uh, but uh, but it also sort of reduces the impact of the thing overall. It sort of reduces the integrity of the thing. Because right, yeah. it seems more like those other witchcraft movies that have been done. They never, most of them prior to this movie, I don't think you saw many naked women dancing around. But there was always like in The Devil Rides Out, they would always try to simulate what an orgy looks. That always looks silly. Yeah. Actually having <laughs> sex. You know. uh, apparently, uh, orgies were things where people sort of scream with laughter and, and you know, put grapes in each other's mouths and splash liquor all over each other yeah. there's no actual sex in <laughs> but um you know i guess with the 70s when when the 70s came along and, the, and you actually had porno films being distributed uh pretty widely uh, they became a little more open in in the nudity and the, yeah. the sexual stuff as a matter of fact probably more liberal in their use of nudity and sexual content in those movies in that period in the late 60s and early 70s than they would be now oh yeah you know there was a period there where it seemed like you could do pretty much anything you wanted so if you're interested in seeing you know things of that extreme you should seek out the other movie that yeah, the, movies, yeah. the, vir <laughs> the virgin witch is the one that is practically a porno film, a softcore porno yeah. film so something to check out all right, so uh, well, I guess we both recommend everybody watch this one, especially now it's Halloween season. Yes, great movie for Halloween, that's for yeah. sure. I don't know if the rape scene would go over too well at a Halloween party. Probably not. You know, not for mixed company, but you know, generally the feel of it is very Hall Halloweenish. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess uh, for Halloween they can watch your movies too. Where can they find those at? Uh, well, my movies, Demon Resurrection and Sleepless Nights, are both available on Amazon uh, and. Uh, uh, Demon Resurrection is available for free on Tubi TV, and uh, Sleepless Nights is available uh, for free on Plex TV, and uh, coming soon to other platforms. Yeah. 
But if people do a search on demon resurrection or sleepless nights revamped, they should find it in a lot of different places that they can either buy it or watch it for free with ads. I recommend both of them. Thank you, sir. I think it's only what to rent it is only a dollar ninety nine on Amazon. Yeah, it's very inexpensive. Just uh, get that that we don't set through the ads on Plex. <laughs> right. Yes, I would say the same thing. I mean, I'm appreciative of the fact that Plex is carrying the film. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, if you want to watch it without ads, it's probably best to just spend the dollar ninety nine and you'll you'll own it forever. Yeah. Even if it, even if it's like two ninety nine, oh yeah, ninety nine to own or a dollar ninety nine to rent. But it's you know you can own it forever uh, as long as Amazon exists at least. And uh, you don't have to worry about those pesky commercials. Right. Because they got a lot of them on there. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, Tubi really set, you know, set us in, in that direction when, the, when everybody realized that there was still a, a big audience of people that are willing to sit through commercials. The, the lid was off, right? Oh, you, yeah. You have now a bunch of these uh, uh, new free with ads services, and they all seem to be doing reasonably well. Uh, so... You know, it's a it's a blessing in a way because there's for the filmmakers it means some more money. It's much easier to make money from something that's being given away free with ads than it is to make money with something that you're asking people to actually buy. Buy, yeah. Plus, it gives you yeah, it gives you exposure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. What I what I would say is that just like Blood on Satan's Claw, which I saw on commercial TV, local station. Uh, originally, it's true of a lot of movies that I, I love now and movies that I really consider to be uh, important and influential in, in the films that I made. Uh, those are films I first saw loaded up with commercials yeah. and sometimes with uh, the horror host breaks, you know, the uh, creature features creep or whatever it was, and you know, those type of folks. Uh, and it didn't damage my enjoyment of those films. Nah. But once you see that you like a film, then you seek it out on home video or you know streaming, so you can get the the thing without all of those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I watch stuff on Tubi. I don't mind their; they don't have a lot. But when I try to watch them on Plex, it's, they have way too many. <laughs> well, I think Tubi had a smart idea of not hitting you with a lot of commercials in the first half hour. Yeah. And <clears throat> Plex doesn't seem to play by those rules. They start no. the presentation with commercials, which I don't think is smart. No. Uh, you know, I think that that's a great way to chase people away. Let the people get into the movie and start to care about the characters and then, and then hit them with an idea. <laughs> but when they're ready for that first bathroom break, that's when you want to throw the ad. Right. Well, that <laughs> it, it almost is a, is a convenience for people. Right? Yeah. So that they don't feel like they're uh, interrupting the movie, uh, you know, themselves. It's, it's taken out of their hands. There's a commercial. Yeah. I can go take a pee. But uh <laughs> But yeah, I think that that probably would be a wiser course for all the ad, uh, ad-supported uh, movie channels to try to wait. And this is true of broadcast TV as well. They used to do this. In yeah. the first half hour, you usually try to have very minimal commercials. And then in the last half hour, it's every five minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that's probably a better way to do it. Get people hooked on the story that's being told before you start to hit them with a bunch of commercials. Especially if some of the... Uh, uh, streaming channels <clears throat> that have ads they have a tendency to run the same ad over and over again over and over again yeah very annoying but anyway well uh, whatever however you see it i think blood on satan's claw is worth catching oh yeah i'm gonna track down i think uh i think vinegar syndrome uh had a blu-ray release i'm gonna try to find that one 
Oh yeah, it might be good to have. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the copy I have is a is a, a, a an MPEG four file, which is pretty pretty good, solid, you know, uh, high definition copy. But I guess the only problem with uh, collecting MPEG fours is that you don't get all the supplementary material that comes yeah. with a hard drive <laughs> with a, uh, a, a physical media. So uh, yeah, that might be that might be worth having. Yeah, if you can get it at a reasonable price. Reasonable price, yeah, yeah. You know. What, what what it might be going for now? <laughs> yeah, I don't, know. I don't know if they've sold out ever or not. But... Probably they sold out the first five minutes, and yeah, now it's like two hundred dollars <laughs> for a copy. It's already been opened. <laughs> well, that's a good way to save money. Actually, you buy, uh, buy a used, used copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep that in mind. Maybe I'll do that. All right. Well, this was a this was a good episode, and until uh, next week, we will continue to watch the good, the bad, and the cheaply made. Thank you, sir.